0: everyone' really excited to start this week's podcast focusing on real estate. Obviously, the recent pandemic has had an impact on real estate investings and the opportunities that come with that and to help figure out what's going on, I brought on Mayu and Jacob, who have both been super active in the space despite everything going on, and I think both of them can provide some great insight into what's happening on the ground. So let's start off with some intros. Mayu, why don't you go first? Yeah, so I've, I've known Suthen for quite some time. I've
1: been a real estate investor, I guess, since 2015. Started off in the GTA, moved, built up a few portfolio, a few assets down here, and then moved into Windsor, really chasing the cash flows. I've covered you know, a variety of different types of properties, different types of plays, and i just focusing on growing my portfolio right
2: now. Cool. Jacob? Uh, a little bit about me, pretty similar to my use. So investing in real estate since 2013, I've been mainly Investing in the Hamilton area, you know, similar to Mayu, we do a lot of these buy, renovate, rent, refinance projects. The last about three years, I changed course of career. I was working in data analytics, and then I moved into the mortgage brokering space. And since then, it's been a great education in financing and what it really takes on the back end to kind of build these portfolios. Since then, you know, I opened my own brokerage, Synergy Mortgage Group, and we have about um, ten commission agents, you know, a whole host of full time staff, and we're kind of dedicated to working with investors
0: specifically. Unreal. Great stuff, guys. It seems like given where you both started, you know this is kind of or at least promising to be the first real recession or prolonged recession that we might be going into. So it would be interesting to get both of your perspective. But before I get into the impact of the pandemic, I'm curious to understand what is it about real estate that makes you guys so passionate about it? Like looking at the work that Jacob that you've done, Mayu, you know that you've started up as far as writing on real estate. I think you both are super passionate about this topic and are obviously actively investing in this space. What is it that you guys understand that most people don't?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, for me, it's been the single-handed, like the greatest, greatest way to build wealth. I've had exceptional returns on real estate and I strongly believe that if I just stuck to what I was initially doing, which is you know, just dumping a few, a few dollars into the stock market, I doubt I would have made um, the amount of wealth that I've that we that I've created today, right? So to me, real estate is one of the biggest wealth creators ability to grow your portfolio from nearly nothing to an exceptional amount.
2: Yeah. You know, really ditto to what Mayu said, you know, I wouldn't say I'm passionate about real estate. What I am passionate about is building wealth and real estate just happens to be the best vehicle to do that. You know, when it comes to real estate, obviously leveraging is one thing that it has on its side that a lot of different investment types maybe don't possess that allows you to build wealth. But I just think when it comes to school, what we learned growing up, there's not enough education around finances and how important that is people don't think about, you know, when you do have a lot of equity built up in this real estate, it allows you to make pivots in your career and really chase your passion. Or maybe it allows you to take care of your family or go on that trip. So it's just all the residual benefits that come with the wealth associated with real estate that really kind of drives my passion.
0: Totally. And that's something that I'm super big on as far as building essentially financial independence, right? Being able to do whatever you want, whenever you want. And, and you know, that's definitely big. Kind of going into the pandemic specifically, how has COVID nineteen impacted your investment activities over the past month and, you know, what has surprised you the most? I mean,
2: right now it's a really interesting time with this COVID thing. I think everyone's kind of taking a little bit of a step back to see, you know, what is a good deal right now, given the market conditions versus what the market conditions were 30 days ago. I think your criteria for what is a good investment is going to be kind of personal to you, depending on what your goals are. Maybe if you're looking to live off the cash flow, you need a higher cash flow producing property than someone who's just looking to build a little bit of equity. But I think that in terms of how it's impacted me specifically, I think for me, I've kind of been waiting for those home run opportunities that are existing as a result of this, and maybe it's kind of actually slowed down my investing approach, which uh, maybe won't be beneficial in the long term. Yeah,
1: I, I guess I, on on my side, and Jacob knows that uh, we're still closing deals that you know we're we're put in place well before COVID, and I think there's a there's a huge issue on the financing side. Personally, in my opinion, probably elaborate on that. But I guess moving forward, what what I'm really doing is I took I'd say a week or two off, thought about kind of the properties that I want to be closing. And I'd say, you know, tenant risk is always like a big factor, especially if you're investing in Ontario. And we've, uh, you know, I've always talked to kind of that C plus to B, B plus areas. So kind of really refocusing in on that. You want areas that, you know, you can get good tenants that are going to have stable income and are going to pay the rent now. We do a lot of cash with keys, uh, where we try to, you know, remove the existing tenants and renovate the properties. And I think that strategy, you just have to kind of build in a longer timeline for that, just with everything going on in the evictions and everything in Ontario. So it's slowing it down, still aggressively looking.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. You know, that Maya you brought up, it's funny because things that maybe were a negative about tenants in the past are maybe now positive. So maybe before you didn't want the tenant who is on, you know, welfare or disability or some type of government income. And now flip the switch. Those are the tenants who are on the same budget they were on prior and should be able to pay their rent every month. So, you know, this COVID thing is bringing up all kinds of new perspectives on looking at real estate, but, but yeah, definitely the, the construction side, we could probably do a whole podcast on that and the limitations there with all of this. Yeah. Yeah, I've sure. had to personally
1: like delay a lot of the renovations that we had going on. One of my houses was mid-renovation, and the contractor basically was like, we gotta like put this on pause. And the holding costs are like a pain in the ass.
0: A lot of great points there. Maya, you you touched on financing specifically. Jacob, you know, maybe you can, you know, dive deeper into that, but how has the financing changed or the financing landscape changed? We've seen the rates get cut drastically, right? And, and you know, to unprecedented levels and while I see the headlines, I don't quite understand what exactly that means for the everyday investor.
2: Yeah. So I would say, you know, the rates have had a lot of movement in the last couple of weeks, which isn't, you know, as normal. Normally the rate, the variable rate, the Bank of Canada prime rate, you know, it's normally not having as many ups or downs or drops like it has recently. You know, some people who are currently holding variable rate mortgages, they've seen a big discount in their mortgage types. But um, in terms of the actual rates, they've kind of pulled back up a little bit in the last couple of weeks. Banks are just pricing in a little bit of risk in the event that the bond market does jump up. So right now I'd say um, in terms of lending, the real difference is that, The criteria just seems to be changing every single day. Banks can't seem to make up their mind of what level of risk they're kind of willing to tolerate right now. So things where, you know, let's say um, somebody worked for a company and they were on a one year contract, whereas maybe 30 days ago, a lot of banks were okay with that situation right now with COVID banks aren't as confident that those contracts will be renewing right with the projections of the economy and things like that so they've really tightened up things that used to be you know income exceptions that banks would make over and over and over again are now no longer being offered things like that so you know i think banks are just tightening up a little bit there has been some policy about from one lender about you know not allowing you to leverage your existing properties through a refinance or home equity line as a source of down payment fund that's a huge source of down payment fund for almost you know, 80 90% of investors. So that's definitely going to have an impact on the market if that holds long term. But again, you know, right now, it's, it's changing so much day to day. It's hard to say what the long term impact is. I think, you know, financing significantly impacts the market. I'd say, you know, early on when
1: COVID was, let's say like early March, right? And people were kind of trying to determine the impact of COVID. And a lot of my, my thought process was, look, like there is going to be a negative impact on demand, which could be offset. By lower rates. But what's happening right now is I'm not necessarily seeing the lower rates at the market which holding back a little bit of the demand that would be there.
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting time, right? So is there less demand? Like, Of course, because there's a lot of people who were going to buy who maybe lost their job. There's a lot of people who were going to buy who want to take a step back. But at the same time, there's a lot of people who are going to list their property who are also taking a step back. So we're probably seeing even rid- more reduced supply than we normally see and, you know, the supply demand issue still exists. So, you know, I don't know about you, Mayu, but I haven't personally been seeing any properties on the MLS selling way below asking or things like that at this point.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I was actually thinking that we could capitalize on some, like, you know, great opportunities. I think the reality is that the six-month deferral program is a safety net for a lot of investors, right? So while no one wants to take advantage of it unless you really need to, if your trade-off is, you know, potentially listing this on the market and you're not getting any reasonable offers, you might just pull it off the market and defer your mortgage for six months, reduces your carrying cost significantly, and you can weather the storm for another six months, right? And then at that point, you're really betting that in six months the market would have improved, which we really don't know. Not really seeing any crazy opportunities. There's, um, I'd say, in the pre-construction condo market, there is some opportunity right now because a lot of and like one of my like condos that I bought very early on is finally closing. And if I was in a situation where I was unemployed now, I'd probably have to consider a quick assignment sale, right? There's a lot of those um, opportunities, and people don't know how long they're going to be unemployed for. So this could stretch from any condo closing in like April, May,
0: June, July, even. I'd be looking this So it's an opportunity there, but yeah, depends on what you're looking for. Yeah, fair enough. And on that point, how has your purchase criteria changed? Like, what does the definition of a good deal mean to you guys
1: yeah you know like on my side i'd say it hasn't changed too drastically right like i'm taking a little bit more sensitivity into my model on those calculations concerned about tenant risk you know what's existing tenant that's in there are they going to continue paying and that's something that you know pre-covid it probably wouldn't have really considered too much because my head they'd be out sooner rather than later right
2: that's nothing and then you you get a little bit more aggressive and a little bit more greedy so to say yeah and again i think like like mayu mentioned it's really going to depend on the investor if you're somebody where you already have a portfolio built up and you have 30 40 doors and you have you know really positive cash flows amongst all your different properties, maybe you don't mind taking advantage of a really, really good opportunity, knowing that construction is going to have to start three months later than you would normally take on because you have the cash flow to support the carrying costs. So it really depends on kind of where you're at as an investor. If you're a new investor, maybe some of these opportunities that are out there right now are, are too risky for you based on your kind of your own financial situation.
1: Yeah. I agree with that second that actually weathering the storm and assessing your own liquidity has definitely been like a key focus of mine. Like I've got like HELOCs in place and and things like that, that have kind of allowed me to weather the storm and allowed me to keep going aggressively. But I think, you know, there's always a risk that what you think is your exit op won't exist in like a month or two from now. So you have to be able to weather the storm.
0: Is there a benchmark that you guys use as far as for X amount of dollars or for a certain investment you'd want to have, you know, a certain level budgeted as far as having that safety buffer goes? Yeah, I think for uh, most
2: investors, you know, the way I approach it really is, you know, If I'm doing a projection on a property, I'm using conservative projections. So if something, you know, I think can rent for $1,800 plus utilities, maybe I'll project it with $1,600 plus utilities. And I think, you know, if you continue to use that that system in a time like this, or when the market is really hot, you know, you'll be successful because as long as you're coming in with, you know, conservative rental projections, you're building in some budget for going over in your renovation costs or things like that it's really kind of like your worst case scenario needs to be okay with you. And it's never been more true than right now. I'm a big like bear investor at this
1: point, right? So just it's, I, you know, in my opinion, one of the best strategies to kind of grow your portfolio. And a big part of the bear is on the refinance, right? So the appraisal that your comparable properties would come in at. And in a growing market, that's great. Because even if you take reasonable, you know, assumptions and comparable valuations, then you're not too concerned. And you know, the market increases a little bit, it builds up for any areas that you take. In a declining market, it's made it a little bit challenging because you're not really sure where your comparables will be in two to three months from now, right? So you have to take a super conservative approach on those comparables. That's been a big impact. To the other one, it hasn't changed much. My criteria has always been, you know, about 20% cash on cash return. So if I'm invested in a property like $10,000, I need to be earning at least $2,000 year. and that. I haven't really changed that too
0: much. It's kind of my baseline test. Got it. Uh, For those who might not fully know this, could you guys walk people through the BERS strategy? Yeah, no problem. So
2: it's really simple. So it's an acronym, BRRR. So it stands for Buy, Renovate, Rent, Refinance. So the whole idea is that a bank will lend you 80% of the value of a property on a refinance. So if you're refinancing a property and it's worth 500,000, the bank will lend you 400,000. Okay. So what you're doing with the burst strategy is you're projecting what the future value of a property will be after you complete a renovation based on comparable sales. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to find a property that you can raise the value so high that once you actually complete that renovation, it will be then worth a figure where 80% of that new value Will be enough to pay yourself back for the purchase price of your property plus the renovation costs. So it's a strategy in which you can invest money and then basically recapture your entire investment in a few short months, which allows you to then essentially snowball the process into the next project. I'll it really well there. You start
1: off with you know like forty thousand dollars, and then if you buy like a normal owning that one property for for the remainder of your life, right, um, or until you can save up another forty. So so going the way. With the BRRRR, it essentially allows you to take that 40, buy the 200K, lift the property of that house up to say 200 and then get your 40 back. And then you can use that 40,000, move on to the next project.
0: So it basically allows you to snowball and keep growing your portfolio instead of being stuck. Got it. And who's best suited to take advantage of this strategy? Because obviously it's not meant for everyone, but at the same time, what kind of portfolio do you need to have or what kind of cash do you need to have to start going with this strategy?
1: Yeah, so so the burr is definitely for an active investor. It's it's not a very passive strategy. Part of it is you want to make money when you buy, so you can't just be buying like regular on market, you know, normally priced deals. You want to be buying under market value and then you're going to be doing some renovations generally to lift the value of the house,
2: which, you know, requires a little bit more work than uh maybe a passive investor would want. Yeah, I think the other thing with the burr is like, you know, you just want to make sure you have a good team around you, right? Because you need to make sure that, you know, the borrowing power is there so that when you do want to exit at this much higher valuation than you needed to get in on the purchase that you have the borrowing power to actually recoup that capital. That's really, really important. And then, you know, you're going to need more people in place. Like my, you mentioned just the whole active aspect of it. So you're going to need to have contacts with tradespeople, contracting. You know, you might want to know a few appraisers in your town who are maybe linked up with the institution that you're doing the refinance at to know that you know, you're going to get fair comparables and things like that. So I think it's just building out your team, which kind
0: of just traces back to Maya's point about it just being a much more active investment. When it comes down to building up that borrowing capacity, what exactly does that involve?
2: Yeah, I think it really just comes down to the basics of Having a strong income and a low amount of debts, right? That's what banks are looking at when they're qualifying you for a mortgage. They're looking at, you know, what is this person's monthly income and what is this person's monthly expenses as a percentage of their monthly income. So if you're a self employed person like myself, it gets a little trickier where it's going to come down to, you know, what you claim to the government as your net income is going to be directly what's tied to your borrowing power. So a lot of self employed entrepreneurs, you know, their accountants will say, hey, you know, I was able to get your income all the way down to twenty thousand dollars this year, and you know that's supposed to be this great thing because you're paying a lot less taxes. But that you only make twenty grand, and then also tell the banking institutions, which are tied to the government, that you make much more than twenty thousand, right? So you can't can't have it both ways. But in terms of getting qualified, it really starts with having a stable source of income, having strong credit, so repaying all your loans. You know, making sure you do have existing credit. Some people have no credit products and that may hold them back from buying a house even if they've never had any derogatory history. So I think first step is just conversation with the mortgage agent and they should be able to point you in the correct direction.
1: Yeah, I think that's a conversation I have a lot of uh, Toronto investors just given kind of the price point in Toronto. Um, So then we usually end up sending them to our mortgage broker, to Jacob, for example. But what I also tell people is my limited understanding from the financing world is that one of the key metrics is your debt to service ratio. So essentially, if you're taking on debt, that would result in kind of a mortgage payment. And Jacob, if you're taking on debt, that would result in a mortgage payment of $500 a month. And if you're bringing in rental income of, say, like $1,500, you've well surpassed kind of two to one ratio of rental income to debt. And then so with every property you're, you're essentially adding to your portfolio, your debt to service ratio is essentially improving, right? So then it, it becomes more of a limitation on the number of mortgages that you can hold rather than kind of that DSR ratio.
2: Exactly. I mean, there's a, there's a big misconception that you, know, you can qualify for a certain amount of dollars in mortgage. Some people say, oh, okay, so if I can qualify for a million, that means I can buy two houses at 500,000. When really, if you qualify for a million dollars in purchase price, maybe you can buy 10 houses at 500,000 with the correct rental income associated with all those houses, like my you said. So again, your rental income is one of the factors that goes into your monthly income every month, and it is factored into an application. Every bank underwrites that and reviews that a little bit differently. But that's why you want to make sure that you know, whoever you're associated with on your team, whether it's mortgage broker, realtor, investment partner, what have you, all have experience in investing in real estate. And they can kind of speed up the process for you and not have you wasting your time with a lot of these institutions that maybe aren't so friendly to investors.
0: What are some of the creative ways that you guys have seen or used in terms of making these investments when you seemingly tapped out? Because a lot of times, at least people I know, probably have one property, likely the one they're living in, or perhaps one investment property they feel like they're tapped out. What are some of the things that you've done, obviously within legal bounds, to make sure that you're able to continue investing?
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot. I'm sure Mayu can speak to a lot of them as well. One thing that I do personally is I rent my primary residence. So a lot of times people can't qualify that high in a rental property because they're big mortgage debt on their application is their primary home that does not have any rental income offsetting it. So if you simply rent the place you live and all your mortgages that you carry have rental income offsetting them, then that's going to allow you to continue to buy properties while still kind of living the same lifestyle you want to live with, you know, a residence that you like. Then in addition to that, there's working with partners, so sometimes you have one person who has a lot of capital another person who maybe has the borrowing power or one person who has the experience, but the other person has the capital. So I think partnering up with somebody who maybe doesn't have what you're looking for is definitely a great strategy. I think Maya, you can speak a little bit to that as well. And then, you know, final thing is just looking at alternative sources of income. The bank isn't the only source of income. Sometimes you can get seller financing. Sometimes you can get a private loan. Um, those are just some of the things I'll let maybe Maya, break some of those yeah. down for detail. Yeah,
1: no, I, I think, I think Jacob nailed it right there. So, you know, People have different things, so to say, that, that restrict them, right? So some people have capital, some people can sign a mortgage, but they don't necessarily have the capital to buy the house. So I've, I've heard of people, one person had capital, one person didn't have capital, and they both kind of signed the house and uh, did a joint venture deal that way, right? The other avenue, I'd say, uh, there's always the ability to kind of uh, loan out your money as well. You get kind of creative, so you, you can give them maybe 10% of your deal, plus like, hey, I'll give you back your. Fun interest as well, right? So there's various ways to structure a deal. It's just
0: about kind of meeting the right people, getting out there, networking, making the connections. Awesome. In terms of some of the trends that we've seen from the pandemic kind of circling things back, there's kind of three big things that have popped up to mind and I'm curious to get your thoughts as to how you guys see this impacting kind of investments going forward or investments right now. So the first one is work from home, which you know obviously with the pandemic, everyone's kind of working from home that might change the impact or the value of really city-based real estate, if you will. The second one is remote post-secondary or even you know K-12 to education where more people are getting comfortable with the idea of learning online. And then the last piece, which I think is a bit more interesting, is you know, just the default rates around commercial rent. So obviously with restaurants, a lot of businesses essentially having to shut down there's been a massive impact as far as you know the commercial value of these properties, at least from a stock perspective. Now, that hasn't fully translated yet to commercial properties, but curious to get your thoughts as to how that might impact residential real estate if this were to continue. Yeah, I can jump
2: in on on the first one. I'll let Mayu take the, the next one, maybe. When it comes to to work from home and and how that's going to impact residential real estate. You know, I think everyone's got a bit of a different opinion on it. For me, I'm I'm pretty lucky. My commute is about 1 minute to my office from uh, my house. You know, that's, you know, the way it should be if you're an entrepreneur, I think. You should design it that way. But like for me, I hate working from home like to the point where I've been working from the office every single day throughout this COVID thing. Probably shouldn't say that, but you know, that's just kind of the way I operate. But of course, like working from home has been, you know, something where That is the future. Obviously, everyone knows that commercial leases are very expensive. We have one in in downtown Hamilton. It's very expensive. I think what you might see happen in residential real estate is that having additional space is going to be very important because people might want a home office for the husband or wife working from home. So they have that dedicated space. I think that is what we might see with residential real estate is that the desire for bigger spaces is going to kind of return into the mix because before we saw, you know, real estate getting a lot smaller, condos coming in popularity, things like that. But I think having that additional space in your unit is going to be a lot more important if working from home becomes, you know, more of a full-time lifestyle.
1: Yeah. And I guess just to add on to Jacob's point there, I have properties in Toronto and then also in Windsor, right? So you kind of consider what's going to happen to the price of these, you know, these, these major cities and then what's going to happen to kind of the secondary market side of, of them, right? So you go to London, Hamilton, um, and Kitchener-Waterloo, et cetera. Um, and I think, you know, the GTA, at least, which is where we are all about to be located. So the GTA, at least, Toronto has always kind of acted at, as the center, right? So whatever happens in the Toronto market, there are ripples that are felt. Everything is kind of going up or down. Relatively together, I don't see that significantly changing. It's hard to say that work from home will be the sole factor that could significantly change and change prices. I think transportation is another big one. Like you're seeing the impact of the Go Train come in and significantly impact these satellite cities. I guess on your second question there, the uh, post-secondary education. I think there was always courses available online. I think there will be a certain type of individual that will want that. But I think, um, you know, like I, I moved out for undergrad and it was one kind of the best experiences in my life. So I feel like a lot of people are going to continue to value that. And so there will still be demand on the student housing. It's just going to be a rough maybe one, two years.
2: Yeah. To, to piggyback on that, I think that whole value of just the community associated with going to university and kind of the experience associated with it and things like that. I think, you know, it's very, very clear that for majority of university programs, maybe it's not necessary to do a four-year degree, accumulate all that debt, all that kind of stuff. I think that once our current generation is the new CEOs and things like that of all the major organizations that the requirement of a university degree is going to be like extinct to the point of like where when our kids grow up, like you're not even going to know that was a thing that you needed a baseline undergrad degree. Because I have an undergrad, I have a master's, I had a good experience at both. But I think that, you know, university, the the debt associated with it. It's just going to get to a point where, you know, enough's enough. And if my kid wants to go to school for social science and they ask me, you know, should I do it or not? I don't know like I'm going to be honest with them and if it doesn't make sense like I'm going to tell them but it's just like things like that right like I really think university just really needs a radical change it's not you know I think they need to move towards more free internship less classroom help the economy out a little bit give kids work experience things like that and I hope decreased enrollment and things like that that may happen in the future kind of lead to that conclusion yeah and so so far we haven't been nearly as bad as the us right from like our tuition point of view
1: but every year I see it increasing, right? And I, I made one of the key factors in my undergrad decision in terms of where to go was essentially, I went to Laurier because the tuition stayed flat at like 3500 3, or so a term. And then I looked at Waterloo and it was by your last year, you were paying something like ten to 15000 for a year. And I was like, that's ridiculous. Yeah, So, so it's definitely uh, a significant driver. But yeah, I think you, you'd also ask kind of the question on the commercial rent. You know, I'm continuing to hunt for these kind of off-market deals. And what I'm seeing a lot of Pop up is kind of individuals that own these commercial units or mixed unit buildings and and they're definitely kind of considering selling them. It's you know a lot of the people that own them are also investors, so they're not they're not necessarily in a rush and they know kind of what's going on. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how things play out.
2: Yeah. You know, I can speak anecdotally a little bit to the commercial side. You know, I have a a lot of, you know, landlord friends and things like that. And, you know, they're just in a tough position right now because they'll have a tenant who's been their tenant for, you know, let's say three years. And then they were planning on extending the lease for another five years. And that tenant is, you know, a salon owner. And by the government law, they can't open and they can't produce an income, right? So these commercial landlords are in a really tough position because they understand why their tenants can't pay because they legally cannot operate their business, and it doesn't seem like there's any government incentive or something in place to kind of accommodate that. So I think that's something that you know I hope comes out soon, which is you know some kind of government assistance for those landlords where
0: the uh, the tenants were deemed you know non-essential business. Yeah. For sure. I think that makes a ton of sense. Circling back to where we started the conversation as far as things being slower than normal, from what I understand, how would you guys prepare for when things start to get back to normal? So obviously, when things do start to get back to normal, I think there'll be a huge rush for transactions in general. People who were planning on selling will probably look to sell quickly. People who are planning on buying will also look to buy pretty quickly how do you prepare around that and what are some of the tactics or things that you guys do to stay on top of that yeah I think that it's the same
2: thing that you would do kind of in any other circumstance and that's you know if you're buying a property yourself make sure that all your financing is lined up because you know like my you can attest to opportunities come up and you have to kind of quickly make a decision on them kind of thing so if in advance you know what's possible and what your worst case scenario is from a financing perspective or what have you, then you're in a position to kind of proceed right away. The second thing really is that you're on the same page with your potential partners. If you're partnering on a real estate transaction with someone, you know, speed up that next conversation where you guys identify, you know, this is the type of property we're gonna look for so that when it does come up, there's no back and forth and you just pull the trigger, right? I think it's just getting yourself prepared. And I think that preparation should come now, not for when the market turns back up, you should have that preparation now for the opportunities you may find in the next couple of weeks given this situation. Yeah, I, I think it's exactly that what Jacob was saying is continuing to monitor the
1: market so you can see when that opportunity is starting to come up instead of just picking like an arbitrary date and saying you're not going to buy us at this time because I think the market will kind of plateau at that point. So continuously monitoring it and I think uh, setting up your liquidity, setting, getting your funds ready, making sure you can qualify for a quick close because I think at that point where the market is kind of dipping, you're going to see a lot of sellers panic selling. So while you would arguably think that conditional offers, et cetera, might work, it could, but you're going to get the best
0: dollar value
1: when you go clean offers
0: and you say, you know what, I'll buy your property closed in like two weeks, a month, whatever. Are there any tools that you guys use or, you know, use on a regular basis that could help with this?
1: I mean, personally, I use Excel. <laughs>
0: uh, it's just a like very simple Excel model. Nothing
1: too crazy. This is the mortgage, Canadian mortgage app which, you know, if you're checking out properties on the go and and kind of have to make very quick decisions, that's my kind of initial filter point. And once that's interesting, then I'll whip open the Excel and I'll kind of do a more detailed analysis on that.
2: Yeah, like I'm not as detailed. Honestly, like I'm really like it's almost like a you know a napkin and a, and a pen kind of thing. Like I think real estate, you know, you can it is very sophisticated. You can get very sophisticated with it, but all the basic metrics, like you can rip off the top of your head for the most part. Maybe the mortgage payment, you throw that in a calculator or something. But really, you have a baseline. You you do your projections. Okay, I can run the numbers on a mortgage payment, a projected insurance cost, projected rental income, projected renovation. Like when you've analyzed thousands of deals, you've done like you know ten plus projects, you should kind of know this stuff by this point. So I think just, you know, as long as you have
0: your cell phone ready, um, depending on your experience level, you can kind of analyze most deals. One last question that I had in mind was, you know, you guys both invest in very specific markets. You know, in Jacob's case, Hamilton, in in Maya's case, Windsor. Why why those markets specifically? And and what do you look for when you look into these markets? Like, you know, obviously there's good areas, there's bad areas in, in both of these spaces from an investment perspective. What is it that you guys do to figure out what makes the right investment?
2: Yeah, so I think I think probably for the two of us, I, I would say we're probably both open to other markets too, if the deal makes sense. For me, I started in Hamilton because I was from Hamilton, so it's just really easy from that standpoint. And I was lucky to be from a city that happened to be just a really good investment area. You know, I bought a property in 2013 for 195 thousand. Last year I had it appraised at 460. I've done no work to this property. So that's a little example of the appreciation that we've had in Hamilton. But I would say, you know, why I like Hamilton now and, and want to continue to build a portfolio here is it's kind of that last city that's far away enough from Toronto to get the value, but close enough to Toronto where you could actually commute into the city monday to friday and many people still do it so i think hamilton's got that nice mix of appreciation where you get the appreciation a lot faster on a bigger scale because the price points are higher where you can still cash flow the properties and then just from a personal standpoint it's really easy here because I have all my trades here. I have all my contractors here. So, you know, it just makes the ease of setting up a transaction, getting through a renovation, closing much easier.
1: My story is a little bit different. I started in
2: the GTA because that was my backyard.
1: And then quickly realized while I was building wealth, I wasn't necessarily building up cash flow. I wasn't going to be financially independent investing in the GTA. Um, so I started looking at different cash flowing markets. I actually started off looking at London first. And it was around the time that London was starting to kind of skyrocket and the prices were going up a little bit high. And then at that point, I started looking at Windsor. And so now Windsor has been great from a cash flow perspective, Um, very close to the U.S. It's a border city. Employment's pretty strong right now. I think they got hit pretty hard in 08, but uh, they've definitely made some good changes since then. A lot of different government and capital projects coming into the city. That really gave me a boost in confidence from an employment perspective. From there, while I'm open to like investing in, uh, one of the biggest challenges is every city has so many different pockets that it takes you a significant amount of time to properly understand that like we'll look at properties in winter some of them are like four or five hundred thousand and then some of them are like hundred thousand you kind of wonder um you know what's what's the difference here what's going on And if you don't know the different pockets you would think about hundred properties amazing but then you know it's in the middle of you know the, the most drug-infested area so definitely learning about a market takes time and then once you learn it it's easy to and then you also have. Your contractors, your property managers, your handymen, um, friends in the area. And it makes it a lot easier to keep investing there. And that's really what I've been doing with Windsor. At a point, I'd say I was starting to see the cash flow margin reduce and multiple offers situations coming in. And I was, you know, I was open to looking at different markets at that point. Assisting mobile and uh, finding the market that works for you. Another big thing for Windsor for me was actually low low barrier to entry. Um, The price points were definitely very affordable. You can take a property under $200,000 and, and you can still do that. And so, and the cost of the house is essentially cheaper than it would cost you to build a new house there. Um, so, that low barrier to entry definitely Yeah, uh,
2: Yeah, and that low barrier to entry that, that that Mayu mentions is that because there's a low barrier to entry, that means. You have a bigger pool of potential money partners who can invest with you because more people can qualify to buy in Windsor versus another market. So, you know, I've looked a lot in Windsor. That's a great market too for anyone listing. Like Maya mentioned, a lot, a lot of positives in Windsor. Awesome.
0: I think that wraps up all my questions. Would love to kind of leave it open for you guys to wrap up with any final thoughts. You know, it's been really interesting to get both of your perspectives, really understand, you know, what are some of the key factors when it comes to investing, even during. A time like this when things are slower and obviously demand isn't quite where it used to be i guess i'll just end things off
1: uh you know real estate has definitely provided me with exceptional returns Um, i've always been a a big advocate that's not kind of it's not really about timing the market it's about kind of your time in the market i bought properties um when it was at at the, the lowest point i bought properties at the highest point the real estate is definitely one of the most forgiving assets in the sense that the longer you hold for the most part time will kind of fix all your mistakes and areas that you make when you get started so the hardest part that i find a lot of people struggle with is is definitely just getting started if you're nervous find people that that are more experienced and partner up with them and, and get started and that's exactly what i did as well
2: yeah i think I, w- I would tag team on that you know it's really just there's no right time to do an investment COVID or not and unlike many other industries i don't think you're going to find an industry like real estate where your competitors are so helpful and so on your team to see you win. So with real estate, you know you could be an investor in Montreal, you can be an investor in Windsor, you can be an investor in Kelowna, BC, what have you. And there's just kind of like this community that exists within real estate investing. And if you need a contact or you need help, there's always a million people lined up ready to help you. And when it comes to you know real estate, and Maya mentioned it's a very forgiving asset, if you buy the correct property, you'll always... Be end up in a good place. If you buy a property that would be a great cash flow producer, it needs a big renovation, but you run out of, run out of renovation money. That can still be a valuable property for someone else. So as long as you buy the right property, you know things will usually fall into place with enough time.
0: Yeah, that 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 makes a ton of sense. Appreciate you guys sharing all of your insights and and, and knowledge. What's the best way to get in touch with you guys going forward? Yeah, so I
2: think anyone who's looking to, to get in touch, they can find me on Instagram at JacobPerez10. And uh, you can actually book an appointment right there with me through the app to do a mortgage consultation, a portfolio analysis. If you're an existing investor, who just wants to take a look at, you know, can I reconfigure a few things to improve my borrowing power? Especially if you work with money partners, things like that great place to refer as well that you know they're working with a mortgage broker understands what's happening understands that you know maybe there's two people who need to be communicated with here not just one on this mortgage or what have you So the same for
1: me on instagram my ut25 definitely reach out if you have any questions and if you just want to chat real estate
0: awesome appreciate you guys both sharing that thanks for taking the time thanks for having us see you